Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome to BatChat, the podcast from the Bat Conservation Trust. I'm Steve Rowe and as we head towards the end of the first series of BatChat, this week we're hearing from Jim Mulholland on the subject of bats and trees. This interview was conducted at the National Bat Conference back in September 2019. Are you going to let me know when I make a mistake? No. Okay. <laughs> so... We've just come out of the first session at the National Bat Conference 2019 and Jim Mulholland has just given a talk about bats in trees, so I've just grabbed him. Jim, for people at home who don't know about you, can you just give us a bit of background to yourself, how long you've been doing bat work, which bat group are you from, and do you work with bats for a living? I've been uh, working with bats for the last 14 years. I started my career in ecology and I got a little bit fed up of the late nights and the early mornings and I remember vividly waking up at two o'clock in the morning dragging myself out of bed to do a dorm re-entry survey and thought is this it is this what my life's going to be now and so I decided to leave ecology I decided to retrain in arboriculture and then I went to work as a tree officer for a while and more recently I worked for two charities one the ancient tree forum which combines my knowledge of ecology and trees uh, as well as the Arboricultural Association, where, again, I, it's mainly trees, but we do a bit of ecology, including bats as well. So, no, I used to work with bats, uh, but not really anymore, apart from um, the occasional training course. I belong, I think I belong to two bat groups. So I belong to the Avon bat group and the Wiltshire bat group. However, I'm not, unfortunately, for my sins, not very active with either. We'll keep that bit quiet. Yes. Uh, so why trees? What's the fascination? Well, trees. Trees are incredible. We, talk, we heard a talk earlier about how bats are incredible, and I completely agree with that. Uh, and I've always had a fascination with living things. And it started with mammals. They're the kind of more iconic species. You know, think about the lions and really kind of fantastic species like that. And it then focused down on bats, largely due to my wonderful wife, Laura, who got me into bats when we were studying at university. And it led on to trees, really, just because they're the bottom of the ecosystem they're the kind of the fundamental driving factors we wouldn't be here without trees my passion now is old trees ancient and other veteran trees and they provide the habitat for such a wide range of species you know in particular we're talking about wood decay fungi mycorrhizal fungi uh, and a range of saprozylic invertebrates that live on decaying wood but of course they provide homes for bats other mammals as well and so if you're interested in bats you have to be interested in trees as well because we wouldn't have the bats without the trees so for people listening at home who don't know much about bats roosting in trees at all, can you just give them a quick crash course? It's 
to the ecology of bats and trees, if there's such a thing as a quick crash course in that. How long have you got? Blimey, OK. Well, we have seven, 17 species in the UK, as most of the listeners will hopefully know. As far as I'm aware, we have 14 that are confirmed to roost in trees. And as you can imagine, the species ecology for those varies hugely. So we'll have some species that roost in trees as well as buildings and other structures. And we have some other species that roost only in trees. One of the things I find really fascinating, if we take an example of two, what we would probably consider woodland-ish species or tree, uh, species that are very reliant on trees. We look at nocturnal bats and Bechstein's bat. And if we look at nocturnal bat, we're pretty much looking at a species there that requires roosting in trees all year round. You know, occasionally it turns up in buildings, but on the whole it's trees and it's trees all year round. And then we flip across to Bechstein's, which has been a kind of focus of my study recently. And whilst they're heavily reliant on trees for roosting in the summer months, in the winter... They appear to leave the woodlands, appear to leave the trees, and they go underground. So you can begin to see there, even in two species that appear to be relatively similar to begin with, the ecology is very different, and you can multiply that then by the rest of the species that roost in trees. So that's about as much of an introduction. It's not easy, it's really complex, and that's one of the reasons why it's really exciting. You know, if it wasn't exciting, I wouldn't be interested in going out, climbing trees and looking for bats. It would be boring otherwise, wouldn't it? So why is it that some species are so dependent on trees? Like Things like pipistrelles we know will use both trees and buildings. Why is it that some species like becksteins and notchels have sort of refused to use buildings? Do we, do we have any idea why that is? Well, they're just stubborn, aren't they, clearly? <laughs> well, it comes down, surely, it comes down to the, the species ecology and how those species evolved and the niche that they fill within the environment. You know, the, these creatures have evolved into separate species, because of the driving factors of that ecosystem. They find an opportunity to say, OK, well, let's move out of the trees and into buildings and be kind of fairly plastic like pipistrelles. And as a result, they're our most common species of bats. And the ones that we look at so, uh, that roost only in trees, you know, interestingly, we've had nocturnal, which is reasonably common, uh, and we have backsteins, which is quite rare. So even in those that are kind of stubborn and stick to trees, we have some that are still... You know, they do fairly well, others that do perhaps less well. And there's, there's going to be bigger issues there that it's not just about where they roost, it's about what they feed on when they come out at night you know, and, and all of those things. And you've just given a talk, like I said, at this year's conference in the last session about a year-long project that you've been doing looking specifically at Bechstein's bats. Can you just tell us a bit more about that project and what you found from it? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been looking at trees and trying to learn a bit more about how bats use trees for quite some time now. And we've been going out and basically I spoke last year at the National Bat Conference, hashtag BatConf, and talked about how difficult it is to find bats in trees. And the very first message I put up on the screen was that bat roosts are more likely to be empty than they are occupied. And if we're thinking about people who then survey trees for bats and especially professional surveying trees for bats, that's a real challenge and that's a real issue. If we, you know, people are paying good money to send ecologists out there to survey trees for bats. So I kind of, building on that work, which was initially we went out, found trees we thought were suitable and just kept checking them until we found bats and at the end of 12 months we'd go once a month we kind of say, okay, well we had bats, we didn't and we can kind of show a bit of different uses throughout the year maybe different species but one of the criticisms of the data was that I had lots of individual bats roosting and perhaps one of the reasons why the bat roosts were more frequently empty was because 
they're individuals, they're more transient, nomadic in nature. So what I wanted to do was focus on a maternity roost and then study those. So we did some radio tracking of Bechstein's bats. We found four maternity roosts that we were then able to go on the following year and monitor once a month again. And interestingly, it threw up the similar trends that despite going out 12 times in a year, looking at those four different roosts, we found bats on one occasion. And that's really quite scary, really. So, yeah, it's the kind of step we're working on at the moment. The next step is then trying to improve it. And I kind of spoke last year, the title of my talk was Surveying for Bats in Trees, Can We Do Better? And I posed the question, hopefully raise a lot of concern among all the bat workers in the room, but mainly left it on a bit of a cliff edge, not really providing much of a solution. This year, we've been looking at using trail cameras to improve our likelihood of finding bats. I've been slightly plagued with technical difficulties, but still, despite even cameras only working for one evening, they've proved bats are roosting in these tree features, and they're so much more effective than sending out a surveyor for the 12 visits we did in the previous year. So really exciting times. It means we can kind of refine this slightly. One of the reasons why I wanted to come to the National Bat Conference, hashtag BatConf, was that I wanted to kind of share this idea with people and hopefully get them enthused and excited to go away and try this on roosts that they know of. And kind of, if we all start working on these things, we can kind of say, okay, well, I've got this camera or I've tried this setup and really help refine these things. And once we start generating that interest, the people who who produce the technology, the people who produce trail cameras already, once they realise there's a market for it, hopefully they will be able to provide us a bespoke camera for surveying bat roosts. I was going to say, these cameras are trail cameras you're using, I presume? They are, yeah. So they're just off-the-shelf ones that are designed largely for tracking large mammals. I think they were originally designed for hunting purposes so people could see where deer were so they could then go out and shoot them later. Um, And so there's some challenges with them. They're not designed for very quick-moving small mammals. They're designed for slower-moving large mammals. Yeah, so we need industry to catch up. We need industry to produce us a bat trail camera, ideally with a bat detector built into it that comes on at a certain time of night, etc., etc. So any camera developers out there, listen up. This will be coming in the next few years. And how is it to identify bats to species levels on the footage that's available at the moment the cameras that i've had set up they've been on beckstein roosts and some of the footage depending on how the the camera is focused on the roost feature itself some of them you can see the bat and you can clearly tell it's a beckstein's bat but of course we have a species that's quite uh, easy to identify visually we have large ears with a clear gap through the middle of them I think it will work for some species, so Bechstein's it clearly works for long ears perhaps, nocturnes, things like that. Uh, everything else will probably get slightly more difficult. But if we combine it with a bat detector, you can separate off species like Pipistrel, for example, maybe even just then be able to group it to Myotis, even if you can't work out which species it is. But it's a step in the right direction. And how hard is it to find roosts in trees? You know, we can get the public to find new roosts in houses as part of the MBMP survey, that's relatively easy. How hard is it to do it for trees? I think I, I gave a talk and have a, a stepped, step-by-step process of finding bat roosts in trees. And the first one is to buy a torch, if you don't already have one, uh, and then go and look in some trees, because it can be as simple as that. Uh, and to give an example, I've been looking for bats in trees for quite a while, and I realised I kept looking in cavities. And I'm blessed that I you know, can afford an endoscope and go out and I can use that to survey cavities. And I was walking past a tree, and I thought, you know what, I don't look in flaking bark enough. And I saw a piece of flaking bark on this oak tree, and I thought, I'm going to get my torch out, and I'm going to walk up to that tree and have a look in it. And as soon as I did, I found two barbastels roosting behind it. I've not been able to replicate that luck since then. 
But it is as easy as that. If we don't go out looking for these things, we won't find them. And it can be done from the ground. A lot of the, the woodlands that I survey and a lot of the data that the, my original talk was based on was from woodlands with features about maybe a metre high. And you can survey many more of those in a day than you can ones that you have to climb. And so anyone can do it. You need a torch, and that's all you, you know, the kind of the basic equipment. If you really get into it, you can buy an endoscope, and you can get fairly cheap ones, even from the Audi, little kind of those kind of supermarkets for maybe 50, 60 quid. Uh, and if you get really into it, you know, the top spec one is only maybe 350, 400 quid. And once you find that first battery, that's it. You'll be hooked for life. And what's left to find out? What's the one thing you would like to know that we don't at the moment? I don't think I could pin it down to one thing that we'd like to know. The main thing that drives me is that I want to increase the efficiency of our surveys and the efficacy of our surveys, that people are willing to pay for surveys either because they're forced to for development purposes or you know, professionals working in the arboricultural industry. They are interested in this. What the, challenge, the challenge we face is that if it's not cost-effective, they won't do it. And so my main drive is really not about what we want to find out. We want to improve our surveys. And if we can improve our surveys, it means we can conserve bats. Because once we know they're there, we can deal with them. The issue at the moment is that we're losing roost. It must be on a daily basis during fairly standard arboricultural or forestry operation. And it's not a kind of a slur on that industry at all. It's just the fact that we haven't given the tools to be able to survey those, tr- uh, those trees effectively. And that's because we don't know enough. So once we get our house in order and once we can say... This is how you survey trees for bats. We can pass that on, make it nice and simple for other professionals, and then we can conserve bats. More often than not, trees will be unoccupied than occupied. Trees naturally fall down, rots, and features are lost all the time. And that combined with the fact that the bat species reliant on trees are so transient, does it actually matter that the odd tree disappears? So there's a couple of things there that, of course, these are dynamic structures, they evolve and they change constantly they're not like buildings or underground structures that remain fairly static and don't change much over time you know the 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 decay features the rot etc in trees at one point won't be suitable they're intact wood at some point then you get some action that starts that decay process off and it's a continuum it's a succession and eventually that will be suitable for bats and then as that continues it won't be suitable anymore or become suitable for a different species of bat and it might be that it becomes unsuitable because it fell over or it might just be that the decays advance so much that it's too large and airy now or just completely uh, you know too cold too hot too wet too dry for bats so they are dynamic one of the one of the big challenges we face is that it's knowing which ones are important as well so last year i kind of shared an analogy which was kind of uh, the idea was given to me by a friend of mine keith cohen about bat roosts are like chairs and i talk about how i've got 19 chairs at home and some i use every day and some are really important like the chair in my lounge or my office chair and others like my garden chairs are less useful and i only use them for a set period of time over the summer if i lost one of my garden chairs wouldn't really bother me that much if i lost the chair that's in front of my TV, that would have a significant impact on my life. How would I watch Netflix otherwise? And so how do we know when we're losing that chair in front of the TV compared to a tree in the garden? Or how do we know when you know, we've lost so many that they can't just hop to the next roof? So it is a question that I get asked. I spoke at, a, at the ARB National Conference a few years ago and I got asked that exact question. And it's, we just don't know where that tipping point is at the moment. 
And so the other thing is, is that we need to improve the way that we can mitigate for the loss of these tree roots, either as they naturally degrade or when we're losing them to development or kind of other pressures. And at the moment, the tools we have available, they're kind of suitable for the built environment, so we can build things into new buildings, we can put bat boxes up, and the bat boxes kind of work on trees for some bat species, but they don't work for all bat species. So we need to start researching and investigating ways that we can begin to create these roost features, not only immediately, but perhaps in, you know, start this process off so that in 10, 20 years' time, features start developing and that then becomes sustainable because without that kind of planning and that kind of action you know you you might have bats for the moment but you will lose them over time one of the woodlands that we study the one in Wiltshire and Trowbridge um, is is fantastic has a number of roosts which are about maybe a meter off the ground about 45 50 roosts that are that high and what we think created those was that during the war there was a fairly high stocking density of horses and they would damage the trees and then you know 50 60 70 years later those features have developed significantly that they can support roosting bats and that's great for now but we're not we don't have that pressure on those trees anymore or that pressure on the young trees so what happens in 50 years time or in 100 years time and so we need to start thinking in that kind of that longer time scales i work for part-time for the ancient tree forum and one of the big things we talk about when we talk about old trees is that you know we have to plan in the long term my colleague who works at a site near uh, slough and burnham beaches she has a 500 year management plan because that's how long it takes to grow the next generation of veteran beech trees. And that's the kind of thing, that's the timescales we need to be thinking on. Um, my former boss at the Ancient Tree Forum is working on a Europe-wide veteranisation project, which is largely focused on fungi and uh, invertebrates, but they're damaging trees to see whether they can start generating that habitat with tools rather than with time. And interestingly, they, as they, despite they being focused on fungi and invertebrates, some of the, the wounds in the trees and some of the cuts in the trees, maybe about 30% of one particular type, they found bat droppings at the bottom of it, completely inadvertently. And so I'm having conversations with her at the moment about whether we can say, OK, well, we know the kinds of features that bats use, largely thanks to the work of the battery habitat key and the parameters of those and how big they need to be and maybe how high off the ground they need to be. Can we replicate those by damaging the tree mechanically with tools? Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of one of my next projects I'll be working on. Trashing trees. Trash. It's called veteranisation. Thank you very much. It's scientific. <laughs> and if you had to choose just three words to describe the bat conservation movement, what would they be? And it's exciting is the first one. I wouldn't be working with bats if it wasn't exciting. My colleague talks about ecology and using an analogy of when you're walking in a woodland and you kind of find a, a thread hanging from a tree and you pull that thread and then suddenly a bell rings somewhere else in the woodland that you think is completely unconnected. They're actually connected and we need to work out kind of why that is. And that's just fascinating. That's science and that's it's what it's all about. And we kind of... It, is really exciting and it means that there's always something new to learn and yeah and just keeps me interested in it really second one is inclusive i would say at the moment it's when i started 14 years ago the bat world was a little bit cliquey i had to travel an hour to go and train uh, in wiltshire with a fantastic group there that were welcoming to new people at the time and 
it kind of gave us that kind of foothold and once we got the license we could then kind of spread that elsewhere and I think it's improved significantly with the advent of social media because people are much more willing to share things rather than keep it private but it's also for me there's kind of two key people that have really pushed that forward and that's a good friend Daniel Hargreaves who's just one of the the best people I know who's wonderful very knowledgeable about bats but he will share it as well he'll go around and share that information and once you kind of start that process of one person sharing it everyone else kind of follows on and the other one is henry andrews of course the kind of the great mind between that battery habitat key because he's suddenly just gone well this is what we know about bats in trees and it's it's freely available and all that information's there and put it out into the public domain and he's encouraged other people to go on and start studying bats it was him that really gave me the kick to start studying bats in trees uh, and the final one, I guess, would be uncertain. We're in uncertain times, kind of politically, is the big B word, which I won't mention at the moment. Uh, we're potentially a month or so away from crashing out of, uh, of Europe. We don't know whether that's going to happen on that day or it's going to change then. We, had, we heard from Kit earlier that you know, our hopes are that the legislation will be maintained as it is at the moment, but we don't really know, you know what that will be. But uncertain, it can be positives as well with the ancient tree form. We're kind of cautiously optimistic that if we leave the EU and we kind of then part ways from the common agricultural policy that we, there may be, well, we're heading towards a system that at the moment is termed public money for public goods or public services or something along that line. And hopefully that will have recognition of the value of trees in a farm landscape because at the moment farmers are kind of dissuaded from having trees because it's subtracted from the area calculations which means that they clear farmers the trees and that has a a kind of a massive impact on the wide range of ecology so if we can get it enshrined in that guidance that you know we need more trees that's good for bats as well as all the other species jim mulholland thank you very much hashtag batconf And my thanks to Jim for taking time out of his day to sit down with me for that interview. Jim also has a YouTube channel of various clips of bats in trees. The link is in the show notes below. Next time is the last in this current series of Bat Chat and we'll be hearing from the team on the National Bat Helpline as well as some bat carers discussing the challenges of bat care and the role that rescuing injured bats plays in conservation. We'd love it if you shared this podcast with your friends. On social media, our hashtag is BatChat, and where you can, please do leave ratings and reviews in your podcast app. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the BatChat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of BatChat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the BatChat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to BatChat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow BatChat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.